Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today we bring you another episode from our Ask a Fellow series entitled Rash Decisions, all about penicillin allergy. I'm Zara Morali, and this is Leah Karianopoulos, internal medicine residents, and it's our pleasure to introduce you to two fellows today, Drs. Derek Chu and David McCullough. Can you go ahead and introduce yourselves? All right, I'm Derek Chu. I did my uh, MD and PhD here at McMaster, followed by my internal medicine residency, and now I'm a fellow in clinical immunology and allergy, just finishing PGY-5. My name is David McCullough. Uh, I did my internal medicine here at McMaster, uh, and I'm currently an infectious disease PGY-4 here at McMaster as well. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. So a 65-year-old woman presents with symptoms consistent with acute pyelonephritis. She's referred to medicine from the ER. She reports a penicillin allergy and is started on oral ciprofloxacin by the admitting resident, who is aware that approximately 25% of the local E. coli are not susceptible to this antibiotic, but does not want to risk an allergy. The next morning, a further history is taken about her allergy. She states that her mother was allergic to penicillin and that when she was a teenager, she developed an itchy rash, lip, and tongue swelling immediately after taking amoxicillin for possible strep throat. On day two of her hospital admission, her clean catch urine and blood cultures reveal E. coli, resistant to fluoroquinolones, susceptible to ceftriaxone, susceptible to gentamicin. She continues to have severe pain and fevers of 39 degrees Celsius. A stat dose of gentamicin, 3 milligrams per kilogram, is given overnight. The allergy immunology team and the ID team is consulted for assistance with further management. Hmm, so this is a predicament. Um, I guess the first question I have is, does this patient truly have a penicillin allergy? How would you approach this from a history standpoint? Absolutely. So just to break it down, the bottom line is that it's a maybe. And I think there's a lot of questions that have to take place in the interim to try to sort this out. And to start off with, the basic idea about the allergy history is actually very simple. And at its core, it's just the same thing as any basic OPQRSTUV or something analogous to your standard chest pain or syncope history. You're trying to evaluate what exactly happened, the causes, and risk stratify the patient. For this case specifically, what you're trying to sort out is, number one, was there a severe reaction that occurred, such as anaphylaxis, or something called a severe cutaneous adverse reaction, like Steven Johnson syndrome? Or number two, was something mild and, and neither of uh, the aforementioned, such as just a delayed macular eruption? Or was it number three, something that is definitely not an allergy at all? That would be something like a known adverse effect of the drug, such as nausea or isolated family history without any known previous history of drug reaction. To start with, this, for this patient, you would ask, you know, you had this reaction uh, about 20 years ago. Can you tell me about specifically why you got the drug? What happened at that time? Um, was there any specific feature that happened when you took the drug? And when in the course of the actual antibiotic course did you have a reaction? And then after that, subsequently, any antibiotic trials. Within this, people often may not know the specific details of the specific reaction, but they would know things that are serious. That is things like they were hospitalized, if they had skin and mucocutaneous desquamation or vesicles, or if their organs failed, such as in AIN, or if they became, you know, have to go to the ICU or intubated because of severe throat and lip swelling. 
uh, such as with anaphylaxis. So you've gathered all of this information. How do you then put it together to decide? Are they are they low risk? Is this someone that overnight I can go ahead and just give a penicillin if I think it's the best choice? Or, you know what, maybe I need to be more cautious here. So certainly in this case, you know, she's presented you a history saying that it was immediate onset with, a, with likely the first exposure of the actual drug and involved those features of anaphylaxis that would be worrisome. That is to say, exposure to a drug that caused two or more organ systems to, to develop. So this was primarily cutaneous of the of urticaria as well as lip swelling, uh, which would be suggestive of an immediate type response or uh, a high risk for an allergy. In this case, usually there are two main courses of action. Um, generally, the overnight response will often be for this high risk feature to avoid the drug and sort out consultation to actually uh, assist in risk stratification and maybe other options like desensitization. But there will be other circumstances where, like I said, in isolated family history, for example, you could even even in those some circumstances give the full dose right off the bat because there's no history of any true allergy being present. Fair enough. So anything that comes up like, oh, my, my aunt, my mom had a reaction no matter what it was, we're not concerned. But I never it's had not, a reaction. But I, I myself so never had a reaction, relevant. so that's not a concern. Okay. Right. If it's something like, oh, this penicillin, I was on a moxclav and I had diarrhea, that's low risk if there's nothing else to go with it, not an allergy, go ahead and give it, even if it might make them a little bit miserable for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so we said IgE type things, so the urticaria, angioedema that we um, saw in this, or that this patient gave us in the case is sort of intermediate and maybe you need to sort of navigate with the help from some consulting teams and then anyone that gives you delayed hypersensitivity. So we said like dress or um, Stevens-Johnson is just a no Just avoid like, do not do the it. entire class. Um, yeah. Fair enough. And then all the time I see this, and I'm sure you have too, Zara, overnight, um, oh, I, I'm, I'm allergic to penicillin. And I say, oh, so what happened when you got it? Oh, I don't know. I was I was five years old and I got all given this and they told me mm-hmm. that I'm not allowed to have this anymore. What do you do with that information? Mm-hmm. So sometimes they may or may not know those severe features. Usually if it's um, someone saying that it was 20 years ago plus, we know at least there's decent data saying that if they had an, an actual allergic response, that is to say an, an immediate uh, reaction that would be worrisome for anaphylaxis, usually about 80% of those people will lose their allergy over 10 years, about 50% over five years. So generally, you're not really concerned about anaphylaxis, but what you are worried about running into is these delayed hypersensitivity responses like Stephen Johnson's. Fair enough. Most of the time, people will know if they actually had some terrible, severe, delayed hypersensitivity response that landed them in the eMERGE, in the burn unit, in the ICU for several days because of that terrible organ failure that occurred. So usually in those cases, um, there's two main courses of action, either avoid, but what one emerging concept that more people are trying to promote is this idea of test dosing, as in maybe start at one one-hundredth of the dose or even one-tenth of the dose and if they can tolerate that, then give them the full dose thereafter. Fair enough. Obviously under close monitoring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe we can come back to that. Um, and just in the interest of making sure we make it nice and clear. So the IgE-mediated type 1, so like our prototypical anaphylactic reaction, what are you looking for to say, yeah, like this is this is anaphylaxis? Yeah. So the typical anaphylaxis are going to be uh, two or more organ systems involved with mm-hmm. mucocutaneous responses, 
respiratory responses, cardiovascular responses, and maybe GI. So within mucocutaneous, you're going to be thinking about your hives and swelling, so urticaria and angioedema. Respiratory is going to be bronchoconstriction, such as wheeze. Uh, and then you may have rhinitis or upper respiratory allergic reactions as well. And cardiovascular would be hypotension. And then lastly, GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. But that can be a bit difficult with antibiotic responses. Okay. Lastly, very important is that you can diagnose anaphylaxis formally if you have isolated hypotension immediately within 60 minutes after exposure to a known allergen. Okay. That is to say, if someone's allergic to penicillin and they definitely know they've been tested and so on, and then they receive penicillin <laughs> and they have isolated hypotension, then that's, you would probably call it anaphylaxis and treat it that and way. Treat it as such. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Okay. So let me play devil's advocate. Um, so overnight, as a senior resident, looking at this patient overnight. It's 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. <laughs> you just have so many consults to do. Um, and you're telling me about all this, these symptoms of anaphylaxis. And it, it all sounds very scary. So what's the harm? Why can't I just use a different antibiotic just to be on the safe side? Um, okay. Uh, well, yes. Uh, in certain <laughs> circumstances, that will be uh, the appropriate thing to do. Um, but I think something that we really wanted to, to talk about on this podcast was that uh, this kind of attitude from really from a lot of patients as well as practitioners that um, that there is a significant amount of potential harm with uh, with doing uh, with giving someone something that they might be allergic to. Uh, and that's the only safe way uh, to avoid that is the only safe way to, to avoid harm. Um, and really that underestimates the, uh, the, the costs or the potential harms uh, both to the patient and to the healthcare system of uh, completely avoiding and not addressing uh, the issue of, uh, of the potential that this might not be an allergy. Um, so if, if we kind of uh, sort of expand on that a little bit and, uh, uh, and split it up into things that the patient might be immediately concerned about, um, as well as the, the healthcare system might be concerned about. So I think the patient, um, uh, they're going to be concerned about their immediate health, I think. And um, I think most people wouldn't know something that, uh, that was, that was uh, evaluated in a recent uh, BMJ article in 20, uh, 2018 by Blumenthal et al., um, where they uh, did a cohort study which uh, demonstrated that uh, just the um, label of penicillin allergy uh, is associated with a 55% increased relative risk of MRSA status and a 35% increased risk of uh, Clostridium difficile. Um, So uh, I think if uh, people were uh, aware that they uh, would potentially, with this label of penicillin allergy, be putting themselves at risk of hospital-acquired infections and drug-resistant infections, they uh, would possibly think twice about erring on the safe side, depending on what their actual reaction was. Um, in addition to that, and I think that's really demonstrated in our case, there's lots of harms uh, for the patient uh, for uh, receiving non-beta-lactam antibiotics in the context where a beta-lactam antibiotic would be the first-line choice. Uh, firstly, these other antibiotics tend to have increased toxicity profiles, so fluoroquinolones with risk of C. difficile with QT prolongation. Um, things like gentamicin that this patient also got in our case uh, with nephrotoxicity, irreversible autotoxicity, uh, and patients who are allergic to beta-lactams in, in lots of clinical situations get uh, drugs like clindamycin for skin and soft tissue infections, uh, which carries, again, a high risk of clostridium difficile infection. 
as well as vancomycin for MSSA, bacteremia, mm. and other things like that. And uh, again, obviously, this has risks of uh, nephrotoxicity. In addition to that, uh, we uh, we know that in a lot of circumstances that uh, beta-lactam antibiotics are in fact the um, uh, most efficacious antibiotics for uh, many infections. And I would include in that things like uh, meningitis, um, MSSA bacteremia, um, as well as uh, neutropenic sepsis. Um, and so uh, the, the patient, if they were aware that this was the first uh, first line antibiotic as well as the most effective antibiotic, then I think they would be more willing to uh, or more open to seeing that this is not all benefit from avoiding beta-lactams mm-hmm. completely. The last thing I wanted to uh, just discuss from a patient perspective is that there are a lot of burdens to the patient with having second line antibiotics uh, addressed in this case, but also uh, in the uh, case of MSSA bacteremia, for example, where they may need serum-level monitoring with gentamicin mm. and vancomycin, um, and additional time on an IV drip, which is dependent on the antibiotic, but certainly vancomycin compared to a beta-lactam alternative does take longer to infuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that kind of summarizes it from a patient perspective. Mm-hmm. I think there's lots of other uh, things to worry about from the healthcare system perspective. And um, we know that beta-lactam allergy labels do increase costs. Um, this is very variable, but you can see cost benefits from somewhere in the region of 200. Sometimes they see over a thousand. Sometimes some of the studies have shown up to $4,000 benefits per inpatient admission uh, for patients who are not penicillin mm-hmm. allergic compared to uh, patients who, who are or do have that label. Uh, caveat to that is that a lot of these costs are driven by readmission mm-hmm. and additional specialist uh, opinions, uh, as well as potentially very costly antibiotics. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the studies that I'm, uh, I'm quoting when I'm talking about this, they were using a lot of azotrionum as a second-line antibiotic for gram-negative infections, uh, and reducing those costly second-line antibiotics is what they were after with their uh, mm-hmm. intervention. Even just the staffing required, right? To go check a vanco yeah. trough versus just administering mm-hmm. a dose, right? Mm-hmm. Like right there, that's two more interactions with the patient exactly. than you would have had to have otherwise. So, Yeah, and these things add up over the course of a system. For sure. Um, yeah, and, and then again, we're kind of uh, not even uh, encountering the sort of the large burden of work, cost, and, uh, and problems that... Uh, hospital-acquired infections, antibiotic-resistance infections uh, cause for uh, for the system as mm-hmm. well as the patient, uh, including, you know, costs of uh, personal protective equipment, oh, isolation. Putting on again. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part. Yeah. Okay, so we have a patient, much like this one, that's come in with this label of penicillin allergy. We've already established that... Uh, I mean, obviously, there are certain cases where you do not question that, and that's just, yes, that's true, and we're going to avoid penicillins, but um, how do you manage patients that come in and say to you, yes, I have a penicillin allergy? Where do you where do you start once you move past history? Maybe we can start with sort of an outpatient or non-urgent setting where you actually have the time to, to think about it properly. Okay, so I think uh, in terms of non-urgent patients in the outpatient setting, I think um, there's more and more evidence to really say that Everybody with a penicillin allergy label should be evaluated uh, for their penicillin allergy if, mm-hmm. if appropriate, and certainly at least with an initial history, um, uh, and that may uh, probe further evaluations. 
so these people, uh, after you're taking a full allergy history, should essentially be risk stratified. And I think Derek covered what that would uh, entail uh, in uh, the previous uh, one of his previous answer. When you're talking about people with uh, low risk or negligible risk, and what we mean by that is someone who has a, a clear non immune mediated allergy to uh, to penicillin so they have another adverse reaction so nausea that was clearly uh, a known side effect of the antibiotic uh, you can uh, remove the penicillin allergy label mm-hmm. um, and uh, then I would uh, take some steps to educate the patient uh, on the risks of a penicillin allergy label so something that we talked about in the last uh, in the last section um, and um, then I think it's really useful that the patient continues to disregard or sheds that uh, penicillin allergy label um, and uh, effective communication with the ongoing people looking after the patient, mm. uh, especially the patient's uh, primary health care provider, uh, to make sure that they don't reacquire that allergy status, mm. uh, which is something that certainly does happen to, to people. Mm. So if you're um, a moderate risk, uh, in terms of the, the previous uh, category. So for this, we're talking about someone who perhaps had a type 1 uh, IgE-mediated uh, hypersensitivity reaction. Like uh, immediate reaction. Immediate Maybe. hypersensitivity yeah. reaction. <laughs> um, someone who's essentially had either uh, a, an immediate rash or immediate facial swelling or even immediate anaphylaxis mm-hmm. uh, from the medication before. Essentially, uh, those people are not necessarily still allergic to penicillin. And the the appropriate way to manage those patients would be to, again, take a history and to refer them for a specialist evaluation. Um, So those patients would uh, really or should be uh, uh, going to see their allergist and getting uh, penicillin allergy uh, testing, which I think I think we'll talk, we'll talk about uh, yeah, later yeah, in terms sure. of what that actually involves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the, the real kind of the, the point from that being that uh, patients with uh, moderate risk, perhaps a previous anaphylaxis, uh, should uh, should be evaluated for uh, for a continuing IgE-mediated uh, allergic uh, condition. Uh, yeah, so I think that sort of summarizes yeah, the, the mm-hmm. outpatient. I mean, Fair. obviously, if someone's high risk, if you've, if, mm-hmm. uh, as we said previously, if they've been, uh, if they've had a delayed hypersensitivity reaction, those patients should be should continue to have a little bit of allergy. And yeah. I think something that we probably all feel to do is, is specify exactly what that allergy mm. is in their in their documented notes, and, uh, to, which would make it clear to mm-hmm. future people that this is not something yeah. that can be reevaluated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know I always, like, in, in consult notes when I'm going through reading up on a patient and there's an allergy history, I appreciate having people document sort of yeah. what the reaction was or even documented because I, I find it can be really difficult to take that out of an EMR system yes. to remove it. Mm-hmm. But even just having notes saying, oh, documented penicillin allergy, but they received X medication exactly. while in hospital yeah. with no concerns, or this was the history of it. And so therefore, um, I think it just helps to always communicate that for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it's obviously nice when you have time to go through these things and refer them onwards and get people seen and investigated, but sometimes you don't have the time for that. So someone coming in with sort of severe sepsis where um, maybe a beta-lactam would be the best choice and would be your first-line therapy and you want to give it near-emergently, um, but they've got a penicillin allergy, where do you where do you start there? We're talking about an urgent inpatient setting, and I think for patients with a penicillin allergy label who would benefit from a beta-lactam antibiotic but who are in the urgent sort of mm-hmm. life-threatening situation, you really shouldn't delay the urgent management um, uh, to 
to about to reevaluate a potential <laughs> previous allergy. I think that's reasonably common sense, but just to make it clear that that's not what we're uh, not that's not what we're saying. Um, so I, it should be on the on the plan, uh, probably mm-hmm. towards the end of the plan at the housekeeping stage, um, <laughs> when you've uh, when you've stabilized the patient, uh, that it should be looked into. But um, yeah, you you would treat them with an empiric uh, appropriate choice of antibiotic mm-hmm. that was uh, that, that was appropriate for the syndrome that they were presenting with. And we we want to emphasize that it's critical to risk stratify the patient still then, uh, much in the same way that you know, say a patient is tachycardic and and maybe borderline hypotensive and has chest pain Mm -hmm. you still want to sort out is this like msk chest pain or Mm -hmm. are they in cardiogenic shock and they're they're having a coronary Mm -hmm. event which is it's a huge spectrum in the same way that the severity of an allergic response can be very different but simply you need to sort out was there a serious reaction like anaphylaxis or severe cutaneous adverse reaction like stephen johnson's was it something mild, or was it something definitely not an allergy? Okay. Right. So it sounds like when you really don't have, like, when it really is urgent and you don't necessarily have the time to investigate it the way you want, if you've decided it's low risk for all the reasons we've decided above, mm-hmm. then um, go ahead and give it if you think it's truly safe to do so, mm-hmm. um, and then take the time to have the same discussions you'll have with your outpatients sort of later on down the line when mm-hmm. they're stabilized, and then if it's moderate risk or they do have a history of some like severe cutaneous reaction, then at that point you avoid it and you find the best alternative you possibly can, and then once stabilized, evaluate down Absolutely. the line. So when it is time to call allergy immunology, I know that they test for penicillin allergies, but I don't exactly know how this testing happens and what the sensitivity specificities of these tests are. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> <laughs> or what the likelihood ratios of these tests are. Yeah, exactly. So the, the main thing that, you know, when you consult, the, the main questions that are going to be going through our mind is, is this truly an allergy? Mm-hmm. And if, if it is an allergy, we're going to go through the same kind of dichotomies, serious, not serious, mm-hmm. and is it immediate or delayed? Uh, because the main testing that can be done is for immediate hypersensitivities, mm-hmm. uh, those that are IgE-mediated, et cetera, or your Jelenkum's type 1. But testing for delayed type hypersensitivities is highly varied, and there's really no clear evidence for a validated test right Mm. now. So the most benefit that we can provide is with the immediate hypersensitivities and involves a combination of skin prick testing over the top of the skin and then intradermal testing within the actual skin and then a drug challenge if indicated. So that there's a various number of reagents that we use to Mm -hmm. do that, to do the actual investigations. And essentially they're components of uh, the beta-lactam or the penicillin that are broken down and metabolize the body and that actually the body forms IgE antibodies too that cause the actual anaphylaxis or allergic reaction to occur. In order for these tests to be valid, what we need to do is we need to place some of the actual drug and their metabolites on the skin and prick the skin to push the extract or solution into the skin so that the mast cells within the skin actually react to it. Why I say that is because the testing won't work if someone is on antihistamines or even drugs that uh, that have side effects of antihistamine effects like tricyclic. Um, what we look for is an actual urticaria mm. taking place where we prick. So if someone's allergic to say uh, amoxicillin and we put amoxicillin solution on their skin and then and then prick it, then we will see a small urticarial lesion form. That's right. a 
a uh, clear, it's a, a papule, a central clearing with a surrounding erythema that is quite pruritic or itchy. Mm. So we know that if someone is tested against all these reagents or agents, the negative predictive value is actually quite good. It's about 98%. So in those cases, usually we want to be 100% certain mm-hmm. uh, because that's still you know, 1 in 100, 1 in 50 risk of reacting. And that's when we would move on next to a drug challenge. Usually it's in a graded fashion and we can start anywhere from 1 100 to 1 10th of the dose. And uh, under often continuous monitoring, the patient is given the drug and over time, um, it repeatedly evaluated over about half an hour to an hour. Mm-hmm. And then are there other certain, I mean, obviously it's sort of outside the wheelhouse of what we'd be doing regularly as inpatients, but mm-hmm. other considerations for other medications that you'd have to worry about if you're going to proceed with this? Yeah, so I mean, usually the patient should be hemodynamically stable. The second thing is that uh, there are drugs that will interfere with a reaction if one was to occur. And those are primarily on a theoretical basis, um, uh, or there's no very strong compelling evidence for uh, patients being on beta blockers or uh, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, um, making anaphylaxis harder to treat. Mm. But this is uh, that's something that is in guidelines and so on, so that's why we, we do avoid these drugs ideally. Fair Not enough. always can patients be off these drugs mm-hmm. before we test them, though. Fair. But ideally, you might hold them a few days before. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of my favorite discussions that always comes up is then the, the crossover reaction that happens. So, okay, you've got a documented penicillin allergy. Maybe you've established that it is a serious or um, like moderate risk IgE-mediated allergy. Mm-hmm. So, okay, they're not going to get penicillins, but I want to give them a cephalosporin or a carbapenem. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain sort of the risks there with crossover? Yeah, this is a, a great topic. And especially the one key point is that a penicillin allergy and a cephalosporin allergy are not necessarily, they don't necessarily go hand in hand. So just because someone's penicillin allergic doesn't mean they're cephalosporin allergic and vice versa. The first point is that about 90% of people that say that they're penicillin allergic or report that they're penicillin allergic aren't actually allergic after evaluation. Secondly, of those that actually are evaluated and have, say, a positive skin test, only about 3% will actually react to a cephalosporin that they're given. And this is very different from probably historical numbers that you would heard about about you know say 10 20 percent cross reactivity between penicillin and cephalosporins and that's um especially the case for first generations Mm -hmm. the reason why that is is because those studies are from the 60s or 70s and as it turns out the testing that they did when they gave penicillin allergic patients the cephalosporin turned out the cephalosporin was contaminated with (laughs) penicillin (laughs) so it's actually in the order of three percent rather than 10 to 20 percent and just to be clear so it's not 3% 3% of all the people presenting with penicillin allergy. It's the 10% that test positive on your like skin test and dose challenge testing. Right. Of that 10%, an additional 3%, 3% will actually exactly. react to so very, very small yeah, numbers. Exactly. And then carbapenems uh, is very low. It's probably 1% or less. Um, and as true NAM has no cross-reactivity. All right. Do we have that in Canada? I've never seen it used. Uh, <laughs> it is around. It is around. Okay. I've used it. We're just not allowed. A couple of times yeah. on the ID service, but it's not something that ID Fellow has used it. ID Fellow has used it. So. And so the carbapenem, again, that's less than 1% of people who, who are penicillin react allergic. to the skin test. Yeah. Okay. okay. And the, the key point, though, to remember is that this is for 
immediate hypersensitivities or immediate mm-hmm. allergic reactions. This does not apply to delayed type reactions, especially those uh, such as Steven Johnson's or Dress or AIN, all those types of things, in which case the typical recommendation is just to avoid all beta-lactams. Fair enough. Okay. So those are the ones where you're really, you're not skin mm-hmm. testing them, you're not right. um, challenging them, and you're not using anything within it's in, that it's family. It's completely contraindicated. Okay. So lots of value in testing, but the one population where it's just, you're not even going to trial that is in those severe delayed adverse reactions. Right. So it's probably valuable information. May still be worth talking to allergy about, but they need to know mm-hmm. that before they go to all the trouble of setting up yeah. all of the testing just to have it go to waste. So just out of curiosity, I mean, we talked about penicillin testing. What about other antibiotics? I have people come in with, oh, clindamycin and all these other, like, sulfas and stuff. Can you can you test those? In general, you can't do any skin testing. Mm-hmm. Depending on what they report, you might consider doing a challenge. Allergists might consider doing a challenge uh, to that drug. So, for example, classically, you know, someone said, uh, I'm sulfallergic. Uh, or reports to sulfur allergy, and they report that they had isolated gastritis, or they had I- isolated dyspepsia, mm-hmm. just upset stomach. In which case, you might say, "Well, this is this is a known adverse reaction," and and to clarify this, then we will do a low dose oral challenge and mm. see if they would tolerate the drug without any recurrence of severe symptoms. But if there's anything that's less clear about the history, or mm-hmm. less clear about uh, or, or even if it's clear that they had an anaphylactic or severe cutaneous adverse reaction, then you would probably at that point just say, just avoid this for now. Fair. Yeah, okay. there's no standardized uh, skin or uh, testing for okay. that. So hmm. nothing that's reliable enough to be able to, to refer to. The okay. main ones are beta-lactams, yeah. primarily penicillin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is growing data for cephalosporins. Okay, fair. Okay. We're not quite there yet, I guess. It's to come. Right, practice varies. <laughs> fair mm-hmm. enough, fair enough. So let's come back to our case that we had so nicely summarized. We have, we said, our 65-year-old woman, she's coming out with pyelonephritis, got ciprofloxacin. Unfortunately, the cultures aren't susceptible to it by the looks of it. And she still sounds quite sick. So still very much febrile, um, having severe pain. She gave us this history of, I mean, family history, which I think we've already said we're not concerned about, is not relevant. But then this history of what maybe sounds like an anaphylactic reaction all these years ago. So mm-hmm. what do you do? So, Dave, you, you let me know what you think from the ID choice, because I'm not an ID physician Okay. Uh, to be. Uh, but from an allergy standpoint, some very important key features are, number one, like I said, is this low risk, high risk, intermediate risk. Um, and in this case, this is not low risk. That is to say, it's probably moderate risk that she had a itchy rash with tongue swelling. So that's probably mucocutaneous manifestations. That's probably urticaria, probably angioedema. But somewhat reassuringly, there's no other features such as cardiovascular compromise, lower or upper respiratory compromise. So it's not necessarily slam dunk anaphylaxis, but it is concerning or moderate risk for an immediate hypersensitivity response. The second thing about that is that this was a when she was a teenager, that's about, what, 50 years ago yeah. plus? Yes. And we know that over 80% of those over 10 years will lose their immediate allergy, immediate hypersensitivity to penicillins. So in this case, typically what, uh, depending on the scenario, exactly her hemodynamics, how sick she is, but from what it sounds like, you waited overnight, she's still okay, you got your culture result even back. 
what we would typically advocate at this point would be to do a graded challenge to ceftriaxone, if that's a preferable enough antibiotic. <laughs> or if you even want to forego that, then you could you do a carbapenem, even lower risk, 1% versus, say, 3%, uh, if she was even test positive, um, to do. So to do that for ceftriaxone, you would do, say, you want to do one gram dose IV. So instead of doing the one gram therapeutic dose, you start at 100 milligrams or even one milligram, infuse that, stop the infusion, and then watch for about 30 minutes to 60 minutes. If there's no reaction, infuse the rest of the antibiotic. And if she to- and then again, monitor for 30 minutes to 60 minutes. If she tolerates it, then proceed with your daily dose. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's hard to disagree <laughs> with that. The, I mean, you know, I think the, the problem and the reason why the case is built like it is is because there's no real great alternative. You really mm-hmm. don't want to give this person ciprofloxacin. Okay. It's a really bad antibiotic in this situation. Uh, and um, you probably don't want to be dosing gentamicin acutely overnight either um so um yeah i i mean uh i don't want to be the id person saying go ahead and give like meropenem or something like that but (laughs) that's probably the safest choice of antibiotics that in terms in our region would be used to using fair uh but i mean i think if you go by sort of guideline practice or things that uh, things that you would read in the literature. I think there's a lot of evidence about using this kind of testose and mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and and going with the ceftriaxone as a as a as a safe choice. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that many PGY1s overnight would be comfortable no, doing that. I don't think so. Well, it's an emerging. I think it's an emerging field, but one that is that that more and more I think joint uh, collaborative efforts from mm-hmm. ID and allergy are trying to promote mm-hmm. yeah. as long as it's done safely okay. uh, and in the right context for the right patient. But secondly, you know. Erda could be a good option potentially. Um, yeah, especially if to, she's well, what, who knows? I mean, she might have ESBL. Yeah, and you would have to monitor her though yeah. as well, um, mm-hmm. because you know this is someone you probably have in a little yeah. bit of a higher monitor yeah. setting if you're going to be giving them mm. uh, something which is on their chart that they're allergic to. I can right. see that causing a lot of problems with a lot of getting through the system. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, yeah. Then, right. Uh, but yeah. but yeah, the, the, I mean, the reason for the case is there's no easy answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it's a good good discussion. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, everything doesn't happen overnight in hospital as yeah. much as we <laughs> as all much as it might feel overnight. like it. Yeah. Like I think I would feel comfortable doing a graded challenge if it was 8 a.m. in the morning. The patient was in a monitored setting, mm-hmm. and yeah. exactly how you described it, with the yeah. 30 to 60 minutes of monitoring. Mm-hmm. And like like, like I said earlier, this her reaction was to a penicillin, right? Mm-hmm. An amoxicillin, not a cephalosporin. Yeah. And we've discussed the cross-reactivities between penicillins mm-hmm. and cephalosporins. It's pretty low. Yeah. So, yeah. so what I'm hearing is, I mean, we can all agree, like, she's moderate risk. She's mm-hmm. definitely not low with the history she gave. Doesn't sound like there's a delayed hypersensitivity. So we're satisfied to challenge her to some extent. Um, we all agree that Cipro is not going to be helpful in this situation, so we can't just continue her on that. Um, and then the safest option is maybe to do, like, a graded type challenge mm-hmm. or coming in i mean if i mean she clearly was stable throughout the night if someone can come in and do testing yeah right away yeah. then why not mm-hmm. i suppose if that's i don't know how realistic that is but and, <laughs> well in many cases from the allergist perspective we would be happy to either guide you through this decision making process mm. or if we can facilitate testing then we will fair fair yeah and i think you know uh, if you're in this tricky situation say this patient is quite sick overnight mm-hmm. you're probably going to be on the on the phone phone. to your friendly neighborhood infectious diseases (laughs) and it would be interesting to come to them with that kind of choice do you want me to give cipro and gent or do you want me to give a test dose of cetriaxone assuming that they're 
unlikely to be allergic to it. Um, you're probably going to get one answer over the other there from the ID. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so um, I think at the end of each episode, we always like to summarize sort of five key do not miss take home points. So you guys, can you guys take us through yours? Uh, yeah, well, this is handy because uh, we have a publication in press about the five <laughs> key take home points of penicillin uh, allergy. Oh, well, there you um, go. So <laughs> we'll have to attach look, that. Yeah, look out for it and see much. That'll um, be in the show notes. Uh, so uh, point number one: uh, penicillin allergy is commonly reported, but nine out of ten times it will be tolerated if administered. So approximately ten percent of individuals report a penicillin allergy. Ninety to ninety-five percent of those are not allergic, and reasons for this include. Uh, intolerances, waning of the uh, IgE-mediated allergy over time. So second point, uh, the label of penicillin allergy is bad for both patients and the healthcare system. It's more than just a problem for antibiotic prescribers. This label of penicillin allergy is associated with increased costly, less effective, second-line, broader-spectrum antibiotics, uh, which increases people's risk of hospital-acquired infections, uh, antibiotic-resistant infections, and uh, uh, side effects from their uh, their antibiotics. Third point, patients reporting penicillin allergy can be easily risk stratified to determine if they require a specialist evaluation. So as we said, you can talk about people who are low risk, people who clearly don't have an immunologically uh, mediated uh, reaction to, a, uh, to the antibiotic, people who are intermediate risk, so people who have possibly had an IgE mediated reaction in the past, sorry, or a uh, immediate reaction in the past. Um, uh, they should be seen by an allergist. And people are high risk, people who've had a delayed hypersensitivity reaction who you should not be using that class of antibiotics uh, for. Fourth point, penicillin allergy is lost over time with resolution in approximately 80% of people over 10 years and about 50% of people in five years. So people who, rem- who have remote histories of immediate reactions are unlikely to be uh, penicillin allergic as time goes on. Fifth point, uh, allergy referral and testing is vastly underutilized, but is a safe, accurate, rapid, and cost-effective way of helping our patients to avoid some of the problems that we uh, have talked about through this uh, episode. And so testing with a combination of skin testing, as well as an oral challenge done by a trained allergist, uh, is um, uh, an effective way with a negative predictive value of close to 100%. Amazing. That was super helpful. Thank you both of you for Mm -hmm. taking the time and for offering to do this with us. I think this one will be really high yield for everyone listening. So we really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. Cool. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for (laughs) having us. Thank you for listening to today's Ask a Fellow episode entitled Rash Decisions. This episode was recorded with Drs. Derek Chu and David McCullough and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. Music by Lakshman Visanthamoen. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit www.theinternetwork.com for additional resources and our associated infographic. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again soon.